Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Well, first off, I want to say how how different everything looks from up here. <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Spivey for giving me the opportunity to stand in the prompter's box for him today and the honor to be able to be here. I've been at this church almost seven years now, and uh, it's taken six and a half years for me to be able to be here with you on a Sunday morning. It, it seems like all the best things in my life have taken six and a half years. It will probably take six and a half years to finish my PhD. It took six and a half years for my wife to finally realize she wanted to marry me. And interestingly enough, it took about six and a half years to finally learn how to deliver a sermon that lasted less than an hour. So hopefully you're in good hands today. I have a question, uh, and I know this is going to sound a little weird, but just bear with me. It's going to get somewhere, I promise. How do we know that anybody beyond ourselves in the past truly existed? I mean, think about it. Once the advent of the you know, photograph came around, that became pretty easy to tell. But let's go back further than that. What did they have before the photograph? They had paintings. And so we believe them to be accurate representations, but not always. Before that, we had things like you know, sculpture and etchings. But these are just those people that are recorded. How do we know that people that were, let's say, not recorded ever truly existed? Well, for some people, they left an indelible mark on history. They did something, some impactful uh, element of their life transversed through history, and so we remember them. We know them now. And it's interesting the impact that our actions and our words have on the world without realizing that we can in small ways and in sometimes large ways irrevocably change the world around us. See, we are as a species a group of people that cherish things. We hold on to things and we ascribe value to things that may or may not have value in and of themselves. And we do this in ways that allow us to prioritize what we give our honor to or what we give uh, importance to in how we remember them. You see, these things are sometimes tangible. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're things we forget or take for granted. Sometimes things that we never intended to be meaningful or memorable. And, and sometimes they're things that are not exactly what we planned on or desired. Let's, let's put this to a test, if you will. Well, I, I want to see if I can give you proof and concept of, of what this is. Imagine for yourself a young boy, born, let's say, at the end of the 19th century. And this young man had aspirations of being an artist. Actually, he sang in the church choir. At one point, he even wanted to be a priest. He's, as a young man, he made his living selling watercolor paintings. He has a beautiful name very melodious. It, it rolls off the tongue. Maybe one day your grandchildren, your grandson, or maybe your own child, you would consider naming your child his name. Just say it with me, Adolf. 
But here's the question. Would you name your son Adolf? Especially knowing that this young man was Adolf Hitler. How about this? How about the Hebrew name, meaning God is thanked? Surely that name is good for your son. Wouldn't you want to name your son after Judas? Why do these names bear this kind of response from us? It's because we place an importance on the association that goes between the name and the man. And the name conjures back to us the memories of the man and the actions, and we cannot uh, remove the memory of the action from the name itself. You see, in both these cases, these men at one point were young boys, right? They were children. They had life. They had promise. Everything in front of them still was open. But at some point, their decisions left their names forever changed. And they stand now as either a cautionary tale or something to revile. So today, we're going to be looking at the things we leave behind. You see, Saul of Tarsus was once on a path to be a great Jewish leader. We read in Acts 7 through 9 about his exploits, and later on by his own hand in Philippians 3, he tells us that according to earthly definitions, he had everything at his feet. He had a life that was to be respected. He had power. He had prestige. He even had wealth according to the position of status. But what's interesting, he also had something else. He had passion. What we read about in Saul, as it translates later on to Paul the Apostle, is the same passion in the man. His name changed, but his passion didn't. The one thing that happened is he came across a living Christ. And Christ gave him the one thing he never had, and that was a reason to see that passion fulfilled. You see, Paul, had he stayed a Pharisee, he would have lived a normal Jewish life, a very well-lived Jewish life, I might add you. Being a Pharisee was a pretty cush job at the time. However, once he found Christ, he would willingly lay everything down, all his former glory, all in the pursuit of an eternal glory that could not be taken away. And what he found in Christ was that reason to make anything truly lasting. Now, part of this was that Paul was constantly making new disciples and converts all along his travels. And throughout his ministry, Paul was constantly focused on keeping an eye to the future on how his life and his ministry would ultimately facilitate that. So like I said, today we're looking at Paul and trying to answer the question as we read about the end of Paul's life, What are you leaving behind? What is your legacy? Turn with me now in 2 Timothy 4. And I would ask that if you are able to stand for the honor of reading of God's word, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together. Now I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge to the living and the dead, and by his appearance and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and extort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept my faith. Furthermore, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So what is this? Well, we believe this to be some of the last words written by the Apostle Paul, at least recorded. And this is written to a specific person. This is one of the pastoral epistles. This is not a general epistle to a church body. This is written to Timothy. Timothy being the young man that uh, Paul met while he was in Lystra on one of his journeys. He had already gone through and converted the grandmother and mother of Timothy who raised him up in the faith. And at this point, he has followed along with Paul He has become, in a lot of ways, the apostle that Paul has raised up. Now, he's a young man by the day's standards. In fact, at one point, Paul even says in one of the earlier letters to Timothy, don't let the world look down on you because you're young, but set the example for all believers. And this is really a very impactful phrase. One of my favorite passages, especially to use as I minister to students. But by the world standards, at least by the Jewish teacher standards, Young was really in his early 30s. So he wasn't young as in like young. He was young in the eyes of those that he would be leading. And so Timothy still had his whole career ahead of him. But Paul, as we read by his own hand, realizes that his time is coming short. He knows he's coming to the end of his journeys. And I picture this image, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Think about a cup filled with liquid. You could pour it out, but the rapidity at which it leaves the cup, the complete evacuation of that liquid from the cup just leaves it with this emptiness. There is nothing left in that cup. If you move your hand, it's gone, it's out, it's over. Paul knows his time is slipping away rapidly. And so what he does is he gives a final charge to his young ward. He gives a final command to Timothy. And see, biblical history tells us that Paul didn't just love Timothy, didn't just want to have Timothy around. He chose Timothy specifically of all the people that followed around him to take over the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was where Paul spent arguably most of his time. This is one of his favorite churches. He spent there a combined almost three years on all his journeys through multiple trips coming back around. So this task was not just something he would just leave to anybody. This is not just some random person that he pulled off the street. This church truly was where his heart was. He loved the people at this church. 
And so he knew that if he was going to leave it with somebody, he had to leave it with his closest and most trusted disciple. I think that in what is, you know, telling here is that Paul saw something in Timothy. Maybe some of himself, maybe some of what he wished he could have been, maybe something that he wished he could have accomplished. The bottom line is Paul saw worth in Timothy. He saw value in this young man, this untested pastor. He saw the future in Timothy. And he saw it impactful enough to give some of his final words to challenge him. Now, what I want to do today is I want to just go briefly through this passage and just give you four takeaways as we think about answering that question, what is our legacy? What are we leaving behind? Now, this question is left a little nebulous, and I did that for a reason. Does we mean we as a church? Yes. Does we mean we as specifically Gamble Street? Yes. Does we mean we as individuals? You know the answer. Yes. So let's look at this and go back through and just look at what Paul tells Timothy and see if we can get an idea. First off, what does it mean to leave a legacy, at least in a biblical way? What is our purpose here? Well, first off, what I call the gravity clause, taking our calling seriously. In verse 1, Paul lays out the severity of the charge that he's imparting. He not only says, do this, but he says, by the name of Jesus and his kingdom and by the power of God. This is not a trivial task he's imparting. He's not saying, hey, um, by the way, I'm fixing to go. Why don't you go take out the trash? Why don't you go empty the dishwasher? Go take over that church over there. Make sure they don't you know, fall apart, and uh, while you're at it, you know, go rake the leaves. No, this is a massive undertaking. Paul knows that, but he treats it with the utmost gravity. There is weight to what he says. How do we know this? One, by the fact that he invokes the name of Christ and God in the power of what he's saying, but two, I think it's so cool. It's in the simplicity of what he says. We live in a culture that I would argue is actually temporally myopic. What do I mean by that? They can't even see past next week, let alone the far-reaching effects of what they do. And ultimately, when you work with students as often as I do, you see how quickly you fall very behind in what is in, in style. Take take the current parlance of our times. I'm not even going to try to guess because to be totally honest, I'd probably be months behind. I asked the other day some of my students at DBU, is this saying still in fashion? They laughed at me and said, no, that was seven months ago. Seven months! I'm a child of the 80s. I still say tubular. You know, I mean, things like this just don't make sense to me. But we live in a culture that can't even appreciate next week next month. Some of them can we appreciate tomorrow, right? You only live once, hashtag YOLO, let's do it. It's all about today. So how then, if we live in this culture where things pop into and out of vogue, 
like I said, sometimes even daily, how can we begin to think of something that has any level of permanency? You see, if we are going to make an impact, if we are going to make a lasting legacy, we have to first give gravity to that charge. It has to be something that bears on our soul. It has to be something that we do of our own volition, of our own outcropping of who we are. Our legacy has to be a part of us. It can't be frivolous. It can't be ad hoc. It can't be tacked on. If we're going to leave a legacy, it has to be a part of who we are. The second thing, what I call the force clause, is give clear directives. In verse 2, Paul gives Timothy just that brilliant, simple command. What does he say? Preach the gospel. The imperative there, preach, to spread God's word, to make disciples. Everything that was in the Great Commission summed up in one word, preach the gospel. You see, his legacy to Timothy was to empower this young man, to empower the student to now become the teacher. It was a validation with the imperative for to him to do everything that Paul had been preparing Timothy to do. And later on in verse 5, Paul later imparts another part of the imperative when he says to remain clear-headed. Don't get wrapped up in the things around you. Remain focused be stalwart, endure the hardships, and ultimately to fulfill the call that you have been given. The charge to Timothy was to go and do. It was never passive. It was never just surely receptive. It was empowering and emboldening him to do what he had been designed and called to do. You see, there's no mistaking. At this point, Paul is putting faith and trust, not just in Timothy now, but in Timothy in the future. He's putting faith and trust in who Timothy would ultimately become. What Paul is passing on is validation. This idea that now that I'm gone, it's your time. If we are to establish a legacy, it must be grounded in those things that have any chance of future resilience, anything that can last, not just now, but eternally, the things that move on. The gospel of Jesus Christ is truly transformative. It is eternal. It is needed by all people. What better thing to build a legacy on than the gospel of Christ? The third thing what I call the mass clause, preparing for the resistance to come. Preparing for the resistance to come. In verses 3 and 4, Paul presents Timothy with the possible resistances that he would face in his ministry. He's preparing the young pastor by passing on everything he knows about the world and making sure this young man remembers it. Now, here's what is interesting. Notice when he says, right, Paul had seen many things on his journeys. He recounts these in 2 Corinthians, all the things that happened, shipwreck, beatings, stonings, left for dead, without being uh, fed, exposed to the elements days and nights, right? Paul had seen a lot. But think about what he said. He says, the time will come. Now, I think what's interesting about this is the question could be asked, is Paul speaking prophetically through the power of the Holy Spirit? 
perhaps. I mean, we definitely see this paradigm in place today. Their time has come where people have turned away from sound doctrine and turned to whoever their itching ears will tickle their ears and tell them, no, no, what you're doing is okay. It's fine. You're fine. You're fine. We see that, right? We see that now. Doctrine is one of those things that has kind of gone by the wayside. In fact, churches that hold true to doctrine are the ones that are considered the enemy. They're vilified, right? You should change this mentality. Doctrine doesn't change. How it's presented, maybe, but doctrine doesn't. The word of God is eternal. But he's saying the time will come. So is this a prophetic admonition? Or is he illustrating that he, something that he knew to be true from his experiences that Timothy had not yet experienced? I don't think it's too far-fetched to say maybe it's both. And frankly, if it is both, I think this adds a greater dimension to what he says. He's passing on a wealth of wisdom from the old man to the young man and encouraging him in that. I have walked your path. I've been in your shoes. I know what you're going to face. And let me tell you, it's scary, but I overcome it. The last thing, what I call the velocity clause. It's a look to the future. We must look to the future. In the last three verses, verses six through eight, Paul makes a sober realization. Ultimately, he's on his way out. He explains to Timothy the cause for his departure. But more to the point, he points out that future hope. He's not focused on the moment. Yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Yes, I'm coming to the end of my journey. Yes, I generally realize and I truly believe Paul knew he was going to die. It was inevitable, I think, in his mind. So he could focus on the here and now, but instead he keeps his eyes on the future. Why did he do what he did? He gives Timothy that reminder that those in Christ must ultimately soldier on. They carry forward. They treat their calling with gravity and they keep pressing on toward the goal. See, he now has a reason to pass the torch. Verses 6 through 8 give us why he needs now, why it's incumbent upon him to go forward. And that is that there is no lasting legacy that is focused on the past. Church, we have to remember that a true legacy must focus first and foremost on the future with an eye firmly implanted on that stage. No legacy is built right now with an eye looking backwards. Every legacy has to look toward the future. Now think about the words in verse 7. I've always been fascinated by this passage, just this one verse. Paul's fight was, we read about it, I believe truly a personal one. If you think about in Romans 7, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about his struggles and the way he defines warfare on a spiritual level in Ephesians 6. I truly believe that Paul was wrestling with something. But whatever he was wrestling with, he admonishes to Timothy, he overcame it. I fought my fight, and now it's over. 
of Paul's race was him moving forward toward that goal, toward the chance to pass that baton on, right? Spreading the gospel, yes, that was his goal. But ultimately, his race was to equip the next generation because Paul knew that he could not live here forever. He had to hand it off to somebody else. And now, his race was over. Why? Because Timothy was ready. And he saw in the young man the future. But ultimately, Paul kept his faith. The calling that Christ gave him from the beginning, he will learn how much he has to lose for my name's sake. And throughout the entire process, Paul fulfilled that calling. He lost everything for the sake of Christ. And at the end of his life, he couldn't be more thrilled about it. No matter what, he never gave up the truth or the hope of that eternal future reward that could never be taken away no matter what came. So in closing here, what's, what, what's, the, what's the point of all this? The question still remains on the table, church. What is your legacy? What are you leaving behind? In middle school, my, my love for poetry, some of you guys know I, got, I was working on a degree in poetry. What do you do, uh, do with a degree in poetry? You write really decent emails, I guess. Um, little interesting bumper stickers, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, my love of poetry developed actually when I was in the fifth grade, when I first read Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, uh, first poem I ever memorized, still to this day memorized. I can't remember the quadratic formula to save my life, but I can memorize Jabberwocky. Um, but really, my, my love of poetry solidified when I was in middle school in the eighth grade, and I was introduced to classical American poetry. And one of the ones I came across was by uh, Longfellow. It's called The Psalm of Life. And I just want to read a part of it to you because I think it illustrates very beautifully the point. Toward the end of the poem, he said, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, that seeing may take heart again. You see, the things we leave behind, our legacies, they're not for us. And that's the point. So far too often people build themselves up. They strive their whole life to build something, to make a name for themselves so that one day their name will be carried on throughout history, that they will have this legacy. But it's for them. You see, a legacy is not for us. A legacy is always for those that we leave behind. They're meant to be reminders of our lives. And like the poem says, they're meant to be an encouragement for those who are left and a challenge for those who are left behind to continue on. We're always meant to keep our feet pointed forward and to do what we're called to do. But we also are to never forget that the more steps we take, the more we leave behind. So the question is, church, what are you leaving behind? What are you invested in? What are you building up? What are you pouring into? What are you caring for that has any lasting value? What about us here at Gamble Street? 
What are we leaving behind? This church has been here over, what, like I think 107 years this year? Coming up, 106 years? This church has been here a long time, but all things come to an end, right? What is Gamble Street's legacy? The people that have passed through these hallowed halls, the pastors who've had the honor to stand in this spot, the people who have sung in this choir, who have played these instruments, or not these because these are new, but, you know, the people who have spoken in these places, those ones that are, that are gone, what is their legacy? What will be our legacy to this community, to the kingdom? Is it a building? Is it a program? Or ultimately, is it something that doesn't diminish? Is it a living legacy? Is it the people that were raised up in a solid truth of the Bible and commissioned to continue in the calling that God has given them? Trellis, as you know, as a ministry, is going on its fourth year. And in a lot of ways, I considered Trellis to be my legacy to Gamble Street. I went into it with the thoughts all the time from the beginning of thinking what would happen if and when I left. When Dr. Spivey and I first talked about it, Sammy and I were thinking actually about another church that was looking to call us as their lead pastor in a church in Roswell, New Mexico. Kind of a far out place. <laughs> um, anyways. You know, every pastor has to throw a bad joke in at some point, right? Make sure y'all are awake. But anyways, this church in Roswell, they, were, they, were, they wanted us to come. And Sammy and I were really waiting and thinking about it. We talked to Dr. Spivey, and he said, well, you can do that. But I really think the time is right. If we're going to try and engage a culture, if we're going to try to engage young people and try to engage college students, I think the time is right. Now let's do it. He had a vision, an idea, and he tethered his brilliance with my chaos. And out of that sprang, next to my wife and daughter, I would generally say the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. And we turned down the church in Roswell, obviously. And we went on this <laughs> grand experiment and those, some of those that actually were there the first night who heard me say, we're just going to kick this thing off the deck and see if it flies. And that's what we did. And I had no intention of really staying as long as I did. I was already looking to the future. All right, I told Dr. Spivey, I'll guarantee you one year. We'll get it off the ground. We'll look at who we're going to raise up. And then Sammy and I are going to be looking for something else. Well, it's funny when you say, well, this is what I'm going to do, because then God says, <laughs> you think so. And here we are now, almost four years later. And like I said, Trellis truly has been one of the greatest experiences in my life. And I thought it would be my legacy to this church that I love so dearly. My Ephesian church, the place where my heart truly lies. But I realized just recently that I was wrong. 
trellis is not my legacy to Gamble Street. The students that I leave you with are my legacy. And that's really what it is. My legacy to the church, Sammy's legacy to the church, the, the, the work that we have done that we leave to you, Gamble Street, in the next couple weeks, our legacy to the church is culminated in the students that you have that are a part of this ministry, that are members of this church now, that are serving, that are having kids, that are growing. The legacy that we leave to the church is the members of Trellis. And so my question to you now is, what are you going to do with them? How does your legacy now carry on in them? Because they are truly the future of the church. Whether they stay now for a season or like some of you who came to seminary years ago, they stay a lifetime. The legacy that is in them carries in this church. And very much students in the same way this church will leave an indelible mark on you. I will go from this place irrevocably and forever changed in the best ways possible. And so I close this out. This is not really the sermon I ever thought I'd, I'd ever preach here for my first and I guess only time. I at one point thought, well, do I want to be Jonathan Edwards and like pound on the you know, thing or do I want to just kind of make a bunch of sly, quippy jokes you know what? It's very interesting. I talked to the Coxes before. They didn't know I was going to do this. I talked to the Coxes before the sermon, and they said, just be yourself. And that was ultimately what I was going to do. This is me imploring you as a church to think about the future. Think about where you're going. Who are you pouring into? And think about what you're leaving behind. This is actually part one of a two-part series. Y'all don't know it. But the second part, this is the part about what you leave behind in closing a page on a book. Part two actually has already been scheduled. November the 9th at our new home in St. Louis. I'll be preaching in that church about crossing over the Jordan and starting things new. It's only fitting that I end now with my heart, my church, in a way that ends well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.